Hello, friends. Welcome to Mr. Rewalk, your Mr. Robot recap show brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Aaron. So what's new with you? Well, remember I told you I was setting up a culinary mushroom farm? Yeah, how's that going? Uh, I think I killed it. Oh, no, how? This is funny because I think the belief is you can just like take a pile of manure and leave it in the dark and mushrooms will grow. Um, no, you can also drown it. I think I overwatered it oh, man. and left it too dark. So, um... That sucks. Are I think it's toast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm determined now that... Um, so, you know, we'll look forward to maybe by season three, I'll have my mushroom farming operation going. I'm thinking of getting some houseplants myself because I think that it's kind of therapeutic just to have complete control over another living thing. Therapeutic's a word. That's the king of the help out. <laughs> um, let's, you're going to highlight uh, a track for us that is related to Mr. Robot, <laughs> but not from the episode. Yeah, this episode does have four songs in it, but I kind of hated all of them. So instead, I'm going to go with a fantastic Joey Badass song. That's the actor who plays Leon. And this song is called Paper Trails. Cars, badass, cash ruin everything around me. Cash ruin everything around me. Me. Cash ruin everything around me. Most to no major, no wager. Money ain't a thing. They say money is the root of all evil. I see money is the root of all people. Because we all follow paper trails, paper trails. And everybody got to pay their bills, pay their bills. It ain't easy pay. They say money is the root of all evil. I see money is the root of all people. Because we all follow paper trails, paper trails. And everybody got to pay their bills, pay their bills. This is a pretty cool episode. It opens up with... Elliot trying to trying to lucid dream, I guess. Is that a verb? Lucid yeah. dream, dream lucidly. Yeah, yeah, one of those, one of those. Dream with lucidity. So I think that he's trying to do this so he can um, observe what Mister Robot is doing when he takes over, and Elliot kind of uh, dissociates from himself. This sounds a lot like one of Angela's affirmations because he just repeats to himself, "Mind awake, body asleep," over and over again until he tries to take himself out of the way and let Mister Robot take over. There's a very brief Joanna Wellick scene here. She is talking to Sutherland, who has the phone where they've been getting all those mysterious calls that Elliot has finally traced for them. She says, of all the gifts he sent, this is the greatest. That was a very quick scene, though, because it cuts back to Angela. Last we saw her, she was on the subway with Elliot. And after Elliot departed from the subway, uh, two people kind of came up behind her and gave her a bit of a surprise. It seems like she's actually been abducted now because now she's locked up in the back of a van. She's like a, a caged animal, basically. And she's being driven somewhere she doesn't really know. She thinks it has something to do with Sludge Gate. She tries to tell the abductors, who never say a word to her, that other people have copies of the documents and that this isn't going to achieve anything for her. But it doesn't help. Yeah, they just crank up their music and drown her out entirely. It's also... This, we're going to get into a scene later that's very reminiscent of Twin Peaks, but the jazz music that's playing here also keeps with that theme, sounds like the music that plays in the Red Room in that series. One thing worth mentioning, you know how I said there are four songs in this episode and then I hate all of them? All of them are also from Back to the Future, which is a movie that they've referenced in the show before. So I think that's deliberate too. We cut now to Dom, who's in the hospital after the shooting that happened at the diner. She's unhurt, and she would like to get out of there as fast as possible. Um, they want her to take some, take some leave because of this traumatic incident that she's been through. Yeah, two shootings in like two weeks is a lot for anyone really to, Man, to tackle. that's some pretty bad luck. She knows the Chinese government is involved. She says this might be an act of war, and it's a threat to national security, and that no one is taking it as seriously as they should. 
Santiago takes this opportunity to mention to her that um, China has bailed out E Corp. They've uh, offered them $2 trillion in an interest-free loan. And Dom kind of needs to wonder if these two incidents are related. And here we see Angela again. She's been in this van for a really long time because uh, it was nighttime before, now it's light out. Uh, they arrive at a house that seems to be out in the suburbs. It seems very well decorated, actually. Uh, what did you think of this scene? I have so much to say. So first, we see that it's light out, so they've been driving all night. So they're somewhere quite far from New York, I guess. This suburb, it looks a lot like Elliot's hallucination, where the little girl outside asks him to find his monster and turn the key. So that, it, it looks like that, like the Edward Scissorhands suburb. Like, that's what this place <laughs> looks like. Find your monster and turn your key. Compared to all of the creepy, weird stuff that happens in this scene, that seems to make perfect sense by now. I know, like, that seems like a rather mild hallucination compared to what we understand to be a real incident that happens to Angela and does consume most of this episode. She gets into a house, and again, this she goes through a garage. It looks like any family's garage. Everything inside the house is black and white. The scenes that follow um, the Twin Peaks Red Room, I guess that's kind of shorthand for any really surreal, weird TV moment. But they remind me so much of that. So they take her to a room. It's dark. There's a tank with a large, is it a koi or a tropical fish in it? I wouldn't be able to identify the fish just by looking at it. A large fish in the tank. There's a computer terminal. The floor of this room is red. Oh, I didn't notice that. So it is literally a red room. Yeah, I mean, it's too dark to really see a lot of the room, but it's a (laughs) reddish room. There are two stools and there's a red telephone. So remember, we've seen the red telephone before because that's the phone in uh, when we believed Elliot was living at his mom's house. The phone that he would use was also a red telephone. So call back to that moment. There's also a a hang in there, baby. You know, the cat hanging from the branch. But remember, Angela is obsessed with affirmations. So that made perfect sense to me that that would be in the room that they took her to. Another person enters the room. I guess that's who the second stool is for. And it's a child who looks like her or as she might have looked when she was a little girl, except she's wearing the same suit Angela's wearing now, which is super spooky. You're super perceptive because not only did I not notice their physical similarity, but I also didn't notice that they were wearing the same outfit. Man, it's so creepy. A little girl in a suit? For some reason, all children in suits are menacing to me. Um, This one just has like a particularly kind of cold affectation too that combined with the suit just makes them look completely stone cold. Almost like a robot child. They have no affect whatsoever in any of this scene, which gets more disturbing as we go along. The child's in charge of the situation. She says there's water coming out of the fish tank and they don't have much time. And she boots up something called Land of Ecodelia on the on the computer terminal in the room. If you do go to the Mr. Robot website, they have actually created a Land of Ecodelia game that you can play. So that's worth checking out for sure if you want to indulge more in the uh, specific weirdness of this encounter. Now, Angela doesn't really want to play ball with this, right? I guess I wouldn't be very happy if I'd been driven all night to some strange suburb either. Basically just being kidnapped. Like, I wouldn't really be happy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what makes you want to cooperate? The child says that if she doesn't answer the questions, she's going to be beaten. And she pulls up her shirt to show a bunch of marks on her back. Yeah, very disturbing. Angela still doesn't participate, but she wants to know who's doing that. 
And I think that she kind of asks too many questions here because they get interrupted, don't they? They do because that red phone rings and the little girl picks it up. So they kind of get the idea that somebody else is watching them. There are definitely other participants to this encounter, that's for sure. We don't get to know what happens in that conversation, but the child hangs it up and goes back to her line of questioning, asking her weird things like, have you ever fantasized about murdering your father? There is a question here, though, um, you know, I think is interesting, and I would ask you, the next question she asks is, are you a giraffe or a seagull? Seagull, definitely. Like, I don't even need to think about it. Why? Because giraffes, like... First off, they are, they, they do have a very interesting evolutionary history. They have a kind of niche with those big long necks, but they still are, they still are grounded. Seagull can fly anywhere. Oh, I also chose seagull. Why? Because I'm a scavenger, I think. <laughs> are they scavengers? Yeah, seagull will eat garbage. They're like a raccoon. I remember this one time. They're survivors. They're scrappy. I once threw um, an ice cream cone at a seagull and I, w- I didn't really consider that they don't have teeth or anything, so they can't really take off small bites. It just ate the entire ice cream cone in one bite, and you can see it like slide down its throat, like that time Homer ate the uh, wedding decoration on top of the cake. That's terrifying to me. Yeah, it was okay, though. The scene cuts away to um, Philip Price, the CEO of E-Corp. Once again, he's visiting Jack at the White House. Price has a proposal... It involves uh, making loans in eCoin, which is a kind of cryptocurrency that eCorp is developing, backed by this $2 trillion bailout from China. It's not a surprise, of course, that Price would want to do... I mean, creating currency is the government's job exclusively, right, in every country. He wants to take that government role and bring it into the sphere of private enterprise and control it. Right. And I think that um, he kind of positions himself in a good way here because he doesn't compare himself to the dollar he compares himself to bitcoin and he suggests that if they don't switch to using a cryptocurrency bitcoin might take off and they will concede too much control over their finances to china because they do mention some very um accurate criticism of bitcoin which is that the mining pools are largely controlled by chinese interests one takeaway i have from this is that price says in trying to convince this government official that defeat can still be profitable I kind of related that to a quote back in um, Elliot's lucid dreaming scene when he's talking about wars being continuous. He says that sometimes you don't win, but it doesn't mean you need to lose. Ah, interesting. So that's a very brief cutaway from the creepy scene. All right, let's go back to the Red Room. There's another question that I want to ask you from the land of Ecodelia. Are you red or purple? Purple. That one didn't take any thought either. Why'd you say that? What's your answer first? Also purple. Man, we are very alike, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, for like siblings with similar interests. And, <laughs> you know, just... <laughs> so, you know, red, very powerful color, uh, very intense. But purple is like a superset of red because it is red, but also blue. And I'm a depressive hacker. So I think that's perfect for me. I love that. All right. So we've established that we're both purple. So what's your reasoning? Oh, so I was like, I'm going to plagiarize a one of Dave Getachew's jokes here. He's also a comedian. He has a joke that says something like, you know, I don't have King Boss confidence. I have middle management confidence. <laughs> I think red is too powerful a color for me. I think I have a uh, purple confidence. It's interesting you say that because purple is like associated with royalty and kingsmanship and stuff like that because purple was originally one of the most expensive dyes to produce. 
It's true in ancient Rome only the most powerful people could afford to have purple clothes because it's actually the dye they used at the time was made out of sea urchins and they were very hard (laughs) to acquire. Did they just like grind up sea urchins? Whose idea was that? Well, so get this. The only people who had white togas were also very rich people because they had to bleach them in horse piss. (laughs) Ammonia. Yeah, that's ammonia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it totally makes sense. Thanks for walking down that road with me. This is my episode of walking you down weird roads. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get back to the land of Ecodelia. The next question the little girl poses is, is the key in the room? Angela doesn't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that either. I have a lot to say about the key. I knew you would. In a second. (laughs) The phone rings again. The question posed based on that conversation again, which the little girl, uh, the little girl answers the phone. Oh, wait, do they hand the phone to Angela at this point? Yep. The person on the phone asks to speak with Angela is how I infer it. What I like here, if you're familiar with that scene in Twin Peaks, they film everyone speaking backwards and then reverse the recording on the track. So it's you're, they're speaking forwards, but everything sounds off kilter. Weird. Yeah, give that a watch. It uh, it will blow your mind. So that's what the voice on the phone sounds like to me. They say to Angela, you're in a dark room with a torch and a match. What do you do? She says, I light the torch. That shows her a door. She goes to open the door. She can't. She can't turn the knob. This is funny because I guess Angela's probably scared. But when they say, you know, what would you do? Like, if you couldn't turn the knob, what would you do? And that's when she figures out the key is important. Because she would just unlock the lock. When asked where the key is, she says, the key was in my fist. My fist was in my pocket. Now, I'm going to go on another little tangent here because this line is actually from Lolita. So that explains why that book was here. Exactly why Darlene's wearing the heart-shaped glasses. Also, there's a line in Lolita um, that refers to Lolita wearing a cloth coat with a fur collar. Oh, Wow. And remember, that's Darlene's regular coat as well. And uh, Darlene's hacker username is uh, Dolores Hayes, which is the name of that character, right? That is the name of that character. The key was in my fist. My fist was in my pocket. She was mine, is what the um, protagonist and predator in Lolita says. So remember, uh, Lolita is a difficult story to read because if you've ever read 300 pages about a child rapist to get content for your podcast. (laughs) I um, hope that you got a lot of material out of that. I did. I did. You're about to hear all of it. That is what the predator in that story says when he's finally gotten the woman who's in his way out of the way so that he can access Lolita. Do you think that that, like, how do you interpret that within the context of this red room? So what I interpret here is that they need to get Angela on board and get that sewn up because she's a barrier to the plot. And to get her out of the way, I believe because of all of the symbols associated with Lolita and Darlene, that means that Darlene is going to become more central and important to the bigger plot. And so that's why in the last episode I was saying I think Darlene has a growing role to come in season three i think that's what all of this inference is now just a last couple of things about lolita because you know i did spend a long time reading it and it <laughs> is a very disturbing story um that is a novel about obsession and paranoia and i think some of that is incorporated into the storytelling here i mean i don't think the plot have anything similar or I don't think any of the characters in Mr. Robot are a predator in that particular way but I think the obsession and paranoia certainly you can see that influence here 
there's also a line where the protagonist says, I need you to believe in me. If you don't believe in me, I don't exist. Wow. I can definitely see how that relates to Mr. Robot. So all of that I find really interesting. Um, there's also uh, very early in the novel, the protagonist, uh, Humbert Humbert, that's the name. <laughs> he says, um, I'm going to use time markers here instead of space markers. I'll make reference to time. So I think some of that is built into the White Rose character. Oh, totally. And the last parallel that I have here is Humbert Humbert says that he is writing under observation because he's also in prison at oh. the time of the writing. Wow. Okay, yeah. So there's so many parallels here. It's practically derivative. <laughs> <laughs> it's very referential. Um it's very referential. And so I thought all of those things are interesting in the way that they've... Because there are lots of references to current events um, and real-world tech, news stories, um, and also literary references, references to other films. Mr. Robot's really a rich kind of... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for that means to bring a bunch of things together? Confluence? That's a good word for it. Of different um, different influences. So anyway... Thank you for going down a dark rabbit hole with me. Um, Lolita certainly informs this show. For moments, we have a scene with uh, Dom in her apartment. This is actually one of my favorite scenes in this whole season because it kind of um, personifies Dom very well. I really like how her character is not just a one-dimensional FBI agent, but you kind of get to understand her as a person through these scenes that take place in her apartment. There, you get to see like she has uh, tattoos, which she doesn't show off at work. And one of them is um, an Ouroboro, uh, a snake eating itself. I interpret this as a reference to um, Dennis Scully from The X-Files, who has a similar tattoo and is also a redheaded FBI agent. She has some other tattoos, too, but I wasn't really able to piece them out uh, in the way that they were shown in these scenes. And so we are working with, you see the Ouroboros very clearly, um, and then you could kind of catch a glimpse of the other ones. Uh, there's a skull, and I think in tattooing, the symbolism of that is that's about someone accepting their mortality and the presence of mortality. There's also a, a geisha tattoo, I think, and that is really unclear to me what the fit might be, especially for a character like Dom. Yeah, I wonder if that'll come up later or if we'll find out that it's something else. You find out a lot about Dom, um, not even just through her speech in this scene, although there is a lot of interesting information there, but her possessions are also fascinating as well. She has um, a virtual reality headset. Her alarm clock's clock is not set, so she doesn't really seem very interested in uh, keeping track of time. And... Um, on her table is just a, a takeout box, what looks like a big bottle of whiskey, and it's just a, a big mess. So it seems like Dom's home life is not necessarily the best. This is another parallel with the Elliot character, I suppose. When she gets home and when she clocks off work, she basically just gets right in bed. It's still light out, but she's ready to go to sleep. I like that her apartment's like TV messy. Like it doesn't look like my real messy house, but it's like... How would we project messy? Like there's like one dirty tissue and like one mm -hmm. food container. <laughs> I think that's interesting because maybe whenever I go to your place, you clean up a bunch first. I do. I do a lot. Yeah. Because it always seems pretty good to me. There is a, a conversation that she has with Alexa in this scene. And that probably reminds you of the um, comedy set that you gave a few weeks ago. I think this is really what I was striving for. They do a really good job here, and I think that it's fascinating that all of the questions and responses are actual valid, um, like, things that Alexa would say. Like, they're not programming it to say things just to fit the script. I think that she's talking to Alexa because she's very lonely, and she actually kind of overtly says that to Alexa through this conversation. She asks if they're friends, they ask if Alexa has a boyfriend, and they ask if Alexa's lonely. 
She also says that she has uh, gray eyes, but she's not really sure. And maybe you remember when you were getting my passport picture with me so I could make my application and we weren't sure if I had gray eyes either. I just put down blue, gray, green, and I think that's what she would probably do too. I also think my eyes are gray and I'm not sure. Yeah, because gray eyes are just like blue eyes that are unsaturated. I thought that was violet eyes. I didn't know that violet eyes exist. I thought that was like indigo children. That's why uh, Elizabeth Taylor was famous. Apparently it's that the pigment is so light that you see the blood vessels through it, so they look oh, purple. Oh, wow. That must be very rare. They are very rare, and that was part of, you know, her legendary beauty. <laughs> so that's the end of the scene with Dom. I guess it just kind of goes to show you that, like Elliot, she's very skilled in some particular areas, but she doesn't have very much of a social life. And maybe that's kind of starting to um, surface through depression and loneliness. Let's move back to the conclusion of the Red Room scene. So obviously quite a lot of time has passed because there's no water in the tank and that fish is dead now. Poor fish. White Rose comes in to smoke. The little girl's gone. Yeah, where'd they go? I don't really know where they go. Maybe they grew up into White Rose. Ooh, maybe. Season three prediction. White Rose, watch beeps. <laughs> She's allocated 28 minutes for this conversation. There's only 20 minutes left in the episode, so this is a bit uh, compressed. It is a very generous allowance of time, considering she only gave three minutes to Elliot. Which shows that what she wants from Angela must be, uh, like, what, uh, nine times more valuable than what she wanted from Elliot at that time. So I have a question for you that may be stupid, but does Angela ha- has Angela even heard the name White Rose before? No, I don't think so. I don't think she knows about the Dark Army. I don't think she knows any of this other world exists. So all of this is just a real mystery to her. I mean, it must be completely confusing and terrifying that all of this is happening to her. She wants to leave. Yeah. No uh, kidding. Well, she's been there for four hours, she says. And well, regardless of how long you've been there, you've been kidnapped and subjected to a weird red torture room, basically. So it's justified to leave. But she's also kind of curious at this point, and she wants to find out what all this was for. Well, and White Rose says, you know, your time isn't worthless. Like, obviously, you spent all this time here. You should know why. White Rose kind of picks on her, uh, saying that, like, if a locked door could stop her from leaving, you know, maybe she didn't really want to get out that badly. This also goes back to, we've talked in a previous episode about lock picking and hacking and how they're interconnected. And I wonder if it was meant to point at Angela perhaps not being as gifted in this way as some of the others. Angela fires back a white rose because she believes she's the person who's hurt the little girl. Apparently that's all makeup. uh, And it's meant to test either her empathy or her gullibility and... I mean, I think Angela, I don't want to say she's always a naive character, but she's very trusting. So that it could be both factors for her really here. Dark Rose says that she should have been killed 90 days ago for basically being a total pain in the ass <laughs> in everything that they're trying to do at the Washington Township plant. White Rose has dedicated all this time to her because she wants to understand why Angela has become so valuable to Price, who apparently has been destroying his partnership with White Rose because of Angela. Is that even clear to us at this point, though? It's not clear to me. I don't fully understand it. I've never fully understood her value to Price, to be honest with you. And I don't now, for sure. <laughs> this this whole conversation really just raises so many questions. I don't think that it's intended to conclude much as it is to plant seeds for future events i think it is really building towards some things that we're going to learn in season three 
because White Rose, remember, with the plane crash that killed the previous E Corp CEO, doesn't believe in accidents. They say that Sludgegate and everything that happened around it is, in fact, the reason why Elliot and Angela became who they are today. And that occurred for a greater good to try to take humanity to the next level. So whatever's going on in there uh, is apparently pretty good stuff. I don't really know what they're doing. I'm super curious if it's going to turn out to be some weird, like, experimental super soldier facility or something ridiculous like that. Season three prediction. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Apparently, Elliot and Angela are at the intersection of all of this. That reminded me of Tyrell um, when he's told Elliot that they were the one constant in a sea of variables. I think that White Rose is kind of coming to that same conclusion because they are um, encountering Angela and Elliot at every twist and turn in the story. Angela is crying and afraid. You'll notice in Python that virtually everyone cries. I have a little counter. One. Um, (laughs) That Angela is crying. White Rose thinks her need for justice and revenge are silly. And that she wants her belief. So Angela's lack of belief and her continual trying to thwart this plan is a huge obstacle. And White Rose needs to get that out of the way. I want to relate this to another thing that Tyrell had said when he was speaking to Elliot. When he remarked that um, revenge was Elliot's exploit. Because it seems like in this case, it's the same for for Angela. Sorry. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, White Rose is crying too now. So that's two. White Rose says, did you ever think if you imagined or believed in something, it would come true? I might be making too much of this where um, White Rose, um, who remember also appears and presents as Minister Zhang at different times. I might be reducing this just too much, but I wondered if that was a reference to, I mean, not only this bigger plot, but also to gender dysphoria. Oh, I could definitely see that being the case. Because whenever anything like that is sort of hinted at, they become very emotional. It seems to be the only time they're deeply emotional. So I wondered if perhaps that was a bit revelatory. That's definitely a good thing to take from it. I thought that they were just talking nonsense like when they were explaining alternate universes to Dom. Well, they do a little bit of that because White Rose says something out, you know, depends on what your definition of real is. <laughs> so, so, I mean, <laughs> depends on what your definition of it is. <laughs> It depends on what your definition of all words in this sentence are and how they interrelate. Where they achieve some, and remember we get back to, you know, mimicry and um, agreement builds agreement type stuff. Angela says, yes, she also believed that if she imagined or believed in something, it would come true. So they're a bit more on the same page than they were at the beginning of the conversation. And that is the end of that scene, I believe. Well, Angela says that she did believe that, but she doesn't anymore. So that kind of reflects the heel turn that she's had over the course of these two seasons. Oh, interesting. We're back with Elliot for his uh, lucid dreaming experiments. It seems like he's able to pull that off now and observe Mr. Robot's actions. It's so interesting. I have wondered what would happen if Mr. Robot were more obviously in charge. Now, he has turned his mind to solving um, an encryption problem in front of him. Yeah, it's very, well, yes, encryption tends to be cryptic, but it's more <laughs> like, um, it, it seems like something the Zodiac Killer would have left, because it's not like a standard AES cipher or anything like that. It's kind of just an ad hoc kind of encryption protocol that they've come up with, except for Rot13. That's something that actually exists, although, of course, it's not encryption. But there's not very much to explain here, because it's kind of just um, things that they've written down for their own purposes. What I found interesting is that, you know, aside from just noting the numbers in the message, which 
are on this like flyer for something called the Red Wheelbarrow Barbecue. I was too focused on the numbers to notice that, but that's a really important detail. It is because remember that Elliot's notebook was called Red Wheelbarrow. Red Wheelbarrow has come up a lot through this season. It has. And so in next episode, we get a really juicy piece of information around that too. I found it interesting that he wasn't doing the decryption himself. There was a website that would just take it to and from one to the other. Yeah. So I guess anybody can encrypt and decrypt now. It's true. You can. So the outcome of this is a phone number. There's like a mechanized voice that tells him to go to 25th and 8th and a cab will be waiting. Really not a lot of details there. This next scene takes place at the home of Angela's lawyer, who's kind of in for the night and watching the news. And the story is that the e-coin loans are happening. And what I find kind of ironic here is that the way it's reported is that these loans have been created to support low and middle income earners, which I think is a story that people have been told about debt for a long time. Yeah, nothing new there. Um, a surprise for the lawyer, though, is that Angela knocks on her door. Angela says, forget the voicemail I sent you. And there's a there's like a big black Escalade waiting for her outside. And the lawyer, I think, thinks she's been kidnapped. Yeah, well, it, it's fairly obvious, to be honest. So I think that the lawyer sees that right away. But there's not much she can do, especially because Angela is not cooperative with her, um, her asking to assist her. Angela kind of realizes the situation that she's in and just wants to keep the lawyer as far away from it as possible. Angela pulls a Joanna Wellick here because she reaches in and hugs her and then whispers... Don't call me anymore. This really has to make you wonder what happened in that red room that changed Angela's perspective so much. So it seems that White Rose has been successful in getting her belief and getting her on side and off of her mission to expose or change anything about the situation. So that is a huge shift because Angela has been building all of the first two seasons up towards that moment where she went to reveal all the information to the regulatory commission. And now whatever she said is so powerful that she's not interested in that at all. Um, one sec. In fact, the lawyer knows that she's not telling her everything. And as she says this, there's a, a brownout that casts shadows all over Angela's face. So I thought that was interesting juxtaposition because she is literally in the shadows as she's saying this. So Elliot um, knows where he's supposed to go to meet this cab and who he's on the way there. He notices that there's like a swamp meet going on outside, which again goes to show you the extent of the damage to the economy that this hack has caused. I thought at first it was a carnival, but it's actually, he comes upon this huge black market and swap meet. So obviously people are kind of doing what they need to do in a cash-limited economy. We get a bit of a perspective shift here because Elliot at first thinks he's following Mr. Robot and then realizes, no, wait, I am him. I'm not following him. He has to make the decisions here. The cab, as promised, is waiting. They know his name. They ask him for an address, though, and uh, he doesn't really have a good uh, answer for that. Yeah, I guess from Elliot's perspective, um, they were just told to get into this cab, and they probably had the expectation that they would know where to go. So he's pretty confused when they ask for the address because he doesn't know what that is. And it, it kind of answers the question, though, when Tyrell gets on the other side of the car. I just have in capital letters in my notes, what? So Tyrell Wellick, who we haven't seen for how many episodes? The entire season. He's alive and fine and walking around on the street. And he obviously has kind of engineered this call to Elliot, set up the cab, and now he's here with them. 
He also says to Elliot they need to be careful and that their partners, whoever they may be, are very influential. I want to counterpose this with Angela's heel turn because I think, you know, we've spent a bit of time thinking about that. One thing I didn't notice or really process was that Tyrell is having like a reverse heel turn. A face turn? A face turn. Do you know what heel turn is from? I do, but tell the listeners. Well, in professional wrestling, the good character is called the baby face. The bad character is called the heel. So when you have one character who has been a, a face for a long time and then they take some action that flips them to heel, that's a heel turn. And correspondingly, you have the face turn when a bad character turns good. You know what? I never considered that there could be a face turn. I thought it was a one-way trajectory. One thing that's interesting is that sometimes a face turn um, involves someone else's heel turn because a good character can turn bad and then a bad character can kick their ass and that redeems them. Ha. So this is getting even better because maybe they're interlinked because I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about how Tyrell, who is set up as, I mean, aside from Price, maybe the series' biggest heel all the way along, how far he's come over to the other side. I mean, if you're of the view that the F Society group is the side of good, um, which I think is is what the story wants us to believe in, that he's so far over to the good side now that he's, I mean, he's underground. He's doing all this super weird shit that we never would have seen him do. So this, I think, is the culmination for me of his face turn that I didn't realize existed or that he was having. <laughs> well, speaking of not realizing if he existed or not, uh, we should keep in mind that Elliot still doesn't know if Tyrell is a figment of his imagination or not. That's right, because Elliot kind of loses it in the cab and he almost blows it for both of them. Yeah, he really frustrates the cab driver, that's for sure. Yeah, because I, I think they exit the cab before they can get kicked out of the cab. Like, they quit before they can get fired here. Tyrell is a bit concerned that Elliot doesn't seem to know anything about this. And remember, everyone else believes that stage two is Elliot's plan, and he set all of it up. One thing I find really interesting here is that Tyrell is like laughing and trying to be funny. Like I've never seen him seem so joyful and so relaxed in all the series. He says that it's up to them now and that stage two is ready and that Elliot's going to be very pleased, Uh, which he may be um, once he actually sees what it is. But that brings us to the end of the first part of this two-part episode. Thank you for listening to Mr. Rewatch. This episode was recorded in downtown Hamilton. The organization we're choosing to highlight today is Art Plus Feminism. They're students, librarians, professors, and artists who contribute knowledge about arts and feminism to Wikipedia. You can donate to them at artandfeminism.org. I'm Erin. I'm Devlin. Bonsoir.